0: Brethren, if you'd open your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. We're going to be continuing on today as we've been working through this challenging, this encouraging. I hope, I hope you found it encouraging epistle. And I remind you that John's purpose in this, as he says at the very end in chapter 5, verse 13, is so that we that believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be solidified in our faith, that we would know against all opposition, against all deception, that we are those who, that are of the truth and in the truth, in the light, as he is in the light, and that in being assured of that, that we would walk confidently and hold fast to him who is holding fast to us. We saw last week uh, the reality of God's great love toward his people, along with the other key truth that John presents about the, the fact that Jesus, as we said, is not just a doctrine or a belief or a philosophy, uh, that he is a person. John, John's whole epistle that he grounds this, his arguments to these beloved saints uh, are really around those two things. Number one, that despite what the Antichrists, the, the false prophets in their midst were saying, about claiming enlightenment, claiming to be of the truth, claiming to be sent by God as his apostles. John says, no, they, they come to you with all kinds of high philosophy. They come to you claiming great knowledge and wisdom. But the reality is, as he says, is we have the sure gospel, the gospel that was given by Jesus to the apostles and prophets, and that gospel is the gospel of, of the God that we beheld, him who was from the beginning, which we have seen which we have handled, as he says in chapter 1, which our, our hands have handled, which we have heard. That God, that living God, that word of life, that Jesus, God incarnate, we be declare to you. And he says we do this so that you may have fellowship with us, with the true people of God, and with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big incentive. And that your joy chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be full. Brethren, John, as well as the living God, desires that your joy in him, your joy in his presence, in his blessing, that your joy would be full. Brethren, that's the first thing. And and then picking up on that joy, I'm going to skip ahead to what we said this past week, last week. John goes ahead and he gives the second great incentive to them. One, know that you are are of those who are of the living God, the one who is manifested. But then he says, behold, just just stare at it. Behold, consider what manner, what, it literally is that word means, what unearthly, what, what place unnatural heavenly love the Father has given to us that we we who were in darkness we who were sinful and sinners we who were lost without hope strangers and aliens to the covenant that we should be called the children of god behold it consider it so then john what john is doing is he's appealing not only to their intellect and to their understanding as he did in chapter one two but now he's appealing to their affection don't 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 go and listen to lies. Don't listen to those who claim to have great wisdom and knowledge even coming in Jesus' name because consider what you'd be losing. Behold the love the Father has given to you. Don't don't get off track. Consider the affection, the great affection of Him who is God. To that end then, I'm going to have us just look at two more key points, implications today of this reality, as John says, that behold, we are children of God. If you'd stand with me, we're just going to read chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Just chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, very brief. And I'm going to just make a couple key points here that I haven't made previously, but I think we need to see. Now, John, 1 John 3, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us. Because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Father, please take this word and grant us that we will hear it in faith. And that faith coming by hearing, we will walk in faith and obey and trust you, love you supremely, and that we will bear good fruit so that your name would be glorified and that we would be deeply satisfied and the world would see and know the reality of the risen Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. One of the, one of the, I mean, let me step back there. I am a fan uh, of C.S. Lewis. Now, I, I will say that. Um, if you ask me, Steve, do you agree with everything C.S. Lewis wrote? No. There are times when C.S. Lewis veered off into, into some things which I absolutely believe he was a brother. I don't think there's any doubt about it, but there were some places I wouldn't recommend C.S. Lewis in terms of centrality, but, but I love C.S. Lewis. I've read enough to have benefited greatly from so much uh, of the things I've read. And one, one of the things that he wrote in his, in his book, Mere Christianity, it's, it's a very famous quote, but it's one that I want to start with this morning. He was describing his own journey out of atheism first into theism and then to robust, (laughs) full-hearted Christianity. And he had, in his own mind, debunked or seen what he viewed as as, as failures in rationalistic, philosophical approaches to proving the validity of the Christian faith. But he describes, in that book, he, he describes the fact that The thing that ultimately God used to bring him in, almost kicking and screaming, was this reality of this quest, this lingering hunger for joy. And joy, I mean with a capital J, joy, that he couldn't find in the world. All of his rationality and of his attempts to explain the depths, the difficulties, complexities of, of life under the sun, had left him frustrated. But then he wrote this. He said that the thing that drew him in was the reality. He says that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was in fact made for another world. As he developed that and he grew in his Christian faith, he then went on and he uttered one of those things again that has been very transformative for me um, in in his sermon uh, that he preached one time, and he wasn't a preacher, this was a a special sermon he was called upon to preach, but it's called The Weight of Glory. He he wrote this, he said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, delight, is offered to us in the living God. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Brethren, I think if I was to summarize what John wants you and I to see, the gist of 1 John 3, 1 and 2 and following. is, Brethren, his call for you and me is to not be so easily pleased. Brethren, we are not of this world any more than Jesus was. We were made from and for another world, the world to come, the kingdom of God. Brethren, you and I who know Jesus have been born from above, born of God, born of His Spirit. And that means that the God who John is later going to refer to in John 4, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God. Everyone that loveth knows God is born of God. He that loves is born of God, for God is love. That's not all He is, but brethren, his point is God has a great, He is the great affection for His people. And brethren, if you know the living God as you grow to know him more and more you're going to find that he who is has and is that great affection for his people that he seizes you with and fills you with a corresponding great affection and it's an affection that nothing in this world can quench because it was made to be satisfied and satiated with living waters and with manna from another world let's just consider these two things I want to consider two implications, applications today of this reality that John says at the beginning of chapter 3, that behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. I want two more things that John points out here that are implications, applications of this reality that we are children of God. If you are in Christ, Him and you, you are children of God. God has set His great affection on you for good. Here's... Two applications. The first thing he says at the end of verse one is this God's children are unknown. That means you're uncomprehended by the world. If you were born from above, born of God, then necessarily, because the great affection, because God has set his great affection in your hearts for another world, for, for that which is to come for the glories of His heavenly kingdom. He's changed your appetites and your polarity to love righteousness and holiness now and to not love the world or the things of the world, lust of the flesh and eyes and so on. Because that has happened, because you've been born of God. The first thing that you would see here, as he says, is understand this and accept it, and not only accept it, but embrace it. Is That God's children are unknown. We're uncomprehended by the world, by this world as it presently is. And I'm going to tell you right up front, the outline that you have in your order of worship, this is one of those weeks where I made it earlier in the week, and then on Friday I ended up pretty much throwing it out. Because <laughs> I, I think the Lord has just taken my thoughts in different directions. So work with me here. I know what's written there. I'm going to kind of deviate a bit from the outline that's in your uh, order of worship. But just hear this out. There's two key points. Number one, God's children are unknown. We're uncomprehended by this world as it is. The spiritually blinded and darkened world that we see did not know Jesus or his Father. We read that in John 15 today. Brother Bob read that. It didn't know Jesus. It didn't know the Father or either. And Jesus is going to go on in chapter 16. He's going to tell these disciples, it won't know you either. If you are in me and I am in you, understand this, that the world will not know you. It will not comprehend you. Think back to the beginning of of the Gospel of John. You can even turn in there if you want. But In John 1, at the very beginning, John is writing the Gospel. He says that of this Jesus, the the Logos, who was the Word, he says, In Him, verse 4, was life, eternal life. The life of the age to come, the life of God. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So Jesus' eternal life from God was the light of men. And the light, he says, shines into the darkness of the world, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. That that word actually has a dual meaning. I think John intended that. It didn't understand it. It couldn't, it, it, what is this? And therefore, it didn't overcome it. It couldn't defeat the light. Jesus' glory is the eternal lifelight of God, as we said. It's the lifelight of the age to come. His glory was enfleshed, John goes on and says. It came down, it dwelt amongst us. It came down from heaven, from above, and dwelt in our midst. It was the light of the world, the light that shines into the spiritual darkness, and it could not be understood or overcome by the world that gets its directives and is under the subjection of the darkness of the Father of, father of Lies. The world that is dwelling in darkness couldn't, didn't even know what to do with it. It's like, to, to, to use another example from Lewis, from Narnia, from you know, it, the world had been in frozen tundra and in perpetual winter for as long as they could remember. But when the sun comes in, S-O-N, and the day spring arises when the sun comes in, those who had been longing and hoping for, who had the desire and love of, of the true king, Aslan, when they were yearning for the, for the days of glory they rejoiced and they knew what was going on and they they began to get active because the snow was melting spring was coming it was on the door but of course where that happened those who were loyal to and loved the cold loved the darkness the opposition came right that sets up the great the great battle there in Narnia it shouldn't surprise us as well brethren there's going to be opposition. The spiritually blinded and darkened world, not only did they not know Jesus, but as I said, they don't know us either. And why, why doesn't the world know us? Why doesn't the world embrace those who are otherworldly in their affections, and their desires? Why, why doesn't the world embrace us and just welcome us? Why do we expect opposition? Well, here's a few things. Number one, as Paul says in Galatians 6.14, he says that he is in Christ, he says that he is crucified with Christ, it is no longer he who lives, but then he goes on in Galatians 6, 14, he says that because of this, because I died with Christ to the world and its appetites and its lusts, he says the world is dead to me and I to it. Well, there's number one, the world doesn't know you and I, brethren, because from the world's standpoint, and our standpoint, we're dead to the world. Those who are Christ's, Paul says in Galatians five twenty four, have crucified their flesh, their that body of, the, of sin. They have crucified the world, the flesh, and the devil, and having nailed it to the cross, you died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says in Colossians three, you have a new identity. You are not of this world. The world's not going to understand that. How could that possibly be? Number two, unlike the world, God's children are those that are loved by and transformed by an otherworldly and supernatural love of God. As we said. Brethren, the world won't understand and and appreciate and know you and embrace you. In fact, it will persecute you the more to the degree that your affection and the things that you pursue are otherworldly. The the world will say, none of that. It will fight back. It, It inevitably does. That's why John goes on in verse 3 and he says, you know, that everyone who has this hope in him, this love and affection, purifies himself as he is pure, because we are pursuing the world to come, which is a world of perfect love, of perfect purity, of holiness, and therefore we seek to orient and and, and purify ourselves now as he is pure. To the degree that you do that, that you say, I am not going to give over, I'm not going to be governed by the lust of the eyes, the flesh, the pride of life, the things that characterize this world, to the degree that you set yourself apart as holy under the Lord, brethren, conflict is going to come. Not because we want to be self-righteous, may it never be, may God just slam down all self-righteousness in us, but because He who is the righteous one is working within us to will and to do according to his good pleasure because we have a new affection that compels new actions. Do you see it? We're otherworldly. That great affection we have because he who is the great affection with his unnatural love has set it upon us, and we love him because he first loved us. Unlike those that are in the world, we have, as I said, we've been born of God, we're born of the Spirit, we're born from above. You know, there is a truth, that old hymn, that old song we used to sing, this world is not my home. Now, I, I'm going I'm to tell you, I'm a, I'm a very tenaciously convinced uh, post-millennialist, and I have a very uh, very optimistic eschatology. This world, as it presently is, is not my home. I'm not looking for some eternal disembodied existence, but the world as it is presently is not my home. The world as it will be, when... The new Jerusalem and the saints come down and is transformed and the curse is gone. And as Paul says in Romans 8, the creation yearns, longs for the day of the revealing of the sons of God because the creation itself is under a curse. The day when that is done, this world, material and bodily resurrection, this world will be my home. But brethren, you and I are only as good to this world now to the degree that you understand that difference, that you embrace it unlike the world we have received the fullness of grace and grace upon grace right being changed from glory to glory you know how it is when when you have in families and yeah, think think about um the brothers uh the 12 the 12 uh sons of, of Jacob right well Jacob he he poured a lot of favoritism on Joseph right and uh, maybe that wasn't wise but Joseph was clearly his favorite. Joseph got the coat. Joseph, you know, that's my boy. <laughs> you know. The other brothers didn't, you know, they, they saw Joseph was the favorite. They saw that, yeah, you know, he's blessed. And they didn't just receive that and go, "Oh, that's great. Let's just all bow down to Joseph. Let's all rejoice for that." And let's let's all. that's not what happened, is it? There was hatred and enmity. Because of this chosen one that they resented rather than by faith going on with god's plan and humbling themselves and saying we're going to go with joseph because god is doing a work here we want to be on board with what god's doing by faith they resented it and they oppressed and persecuted the chosen one brethren that's that's the way it is you are loved of god you are chosen you're special he's given you the code of righteousness in jesus Don't expect everybody else just to get on board and say, that's great. Expect persecution. And mind you, though, the persecution came, but just as with Joseph, so with you, brethren. They will mean it for evil. You will suffer, but God will mean it for good, and he will turn it for your good. He can do no other, and great salvation and blessing will come out of that. Unlike the world, our citizenship and our allegiance now is to the kingdom of heaven and its king. We are no longer under the influence. We're no longer allegiance to the prince of the power of the air, to this world, the power of darkness. We've given up the prince of lies because we are now of the truth. And so the conflict is inevitable, right? We have a new king. We We are loyal by faith to the captain of our salvation, the author and finisher of our faith, the true king of kings. But if the world hated that king, it's going to hate us who follow him too. But brethren, again, I want to exhort you, take up your cross. Embrace the cross. Say, Steve, crosses hurt. Yeah, they do. Crosses have thorns. Yeah, they do. Sometimes those thorns will come just from the world. Sometimes they may even come from people in the name of Jesus. Anybody ever had that happen? People who, you know, in in the church even sometimes do you wrong. Brethren the call for you and me is because of the joy set before you. What did Jesus says, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured and embraced the cross. He despised the shame, sure. But the result is that God now has exalted him and set him in his right hand and given him a name above every name. But brethren, it's not just for Jesus, (laughs) we're going to see in a minute, because God is going to exalt and glorify in Jesus all who follow Jesus and take their crosses too. Jesus, that's why he says, if any man would desire to come up to me, you want to follow Jesus to glory and joy everlasting. You want to have an inca- a kingdom incorruptible undefiled that fadeth not away. Amen. But brethren, as you do that, understand The crosses will come. God loves you so much that he is going to purify you. He is going to get the dross out of you. He is going to form Christ in you. He is going to do what is necessary and prune you in his love to bear more fruit, more love, more peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, more true poverty of spirit, more mourning over sin, more meekness, more hungering and thirsting after righteousness, more heart full of mercy and yearning for purity of heart, more of a peacemaking, not faking, not breaking, but a peacemaking spirit, and yes, with that persecution as well. But rejoice, be exceedingly glad. Jesus didn't just say, rejoice and, you know, happy hurrah. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad. For so they persecuted prophets who went before you. You're on the side of the winning team. You're on the side of the king of kings. Let them give you their best. Let the world throw its best at you. Brethren, Jesus is the great physician. He heals every hurt. Our Lord Jesus is the great comforter who comforts us in all of our affliction. And brethren, what a comfort it is. There's no comfort like the comfort of Jesus is there. Like Jesus our vine in whom we abide. God works in us and we bear lasting spiritual fruit despite the dwelling in the wilderness of this world. We bear good works, good words, not perfectly but truly, and those in darkness come to taste and see that God is good because in the midst of the desert and the wilderness they see that a tree of life is growing there and there's fruit and it's good. We become a blessing to the world because you and I, brethren, are being fed by the living waters that flow from the throne of God. The streams in the desert that don't run dry. And with heavenly manna in the wilderness, which is far better than anything you're going to get at Kroger's, I assure you. Satisfies our soul. So, brethren, I just, point one, there it is. Embrace the antithesis. Embrace the fact that if you follow Jesus with a whole heart, the world's not going to love and appreciate you. It's Okay. I love the words of Michael Card. He wrote a song years ago called Why. And, and one of the things he wrote, writes in there about Jesus, he says, why did it have to be a thorny crown pressed on his head? It should have been a royal one made of jewels and gold instead. And then he answers the question. He says, it had to be a crown of thorns because in this life that we live, for all that would seek to love, a thorn is all this world has to give. And why did it have to be a heavy cross that Jesus was made to bear? Why did they nail his feet and his hands when his love would have held him there? It was a cross for on a cross a thief was supposed to pay. and Jesus, just like you and me, Jesus had come into this world to steal every heart away. Isn't that great? Embrace the cross, brethren. Remember Paul's words in Philippians 3. What was Paul's great longing? He says, I count everything, all of my accolades, all of my uh, achievements, all of uh, my name, whatever things I have, I count them all as lost, rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. None of that. No self-righteousness, but rather the real righteousness, the heart righteousness that comes from faith, from God that I may know him, which is eternal life, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to him, and I may attain, he says, to the resurrection of the dead, which brings me to the second and last point. John says, secondly, that as a result of your being children of God, not only will the world not know you, not appreciate you, as it didn't Jesus or the Father. But it also, John says in verse 2, that because you are now children of God, we have a great and glorious future. It hasn't been revealed to us yet what God's going to do fully in us and make us. But here's what we know. We know that when Jesus is revealed, when he is revealed in glory, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Brethren, whatever you're going to lose with regard to affection and friendship with the world, and I assure you, this more than makes up for it. All right? I would far rather be loved and known by him who is the great affection than have all of the accolades and praises, friendship with the world, the passing pleasures of sin, the world which is passing away. Look what he says here. First of all, he says, What we will be has not yet been revealed. I remember it of Paul's words, you know, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. He says, But as it is written, I have not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul puts it another way. He says, for now we see through a glass dimly, but then, at that great revealing, the appearing of Jesus, we will see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know even as I am known. Brethren, how, how how much does God know you? Is there anything about you that is unknown to the living God? And that may be a terrifying and frightening thing to you at one level. If I'm persisting in sin without repentance, walking in darkness instead of bringing it to the light, then it should terrify you. That's What Hebrews 4 says, that all things are open and exposed to the, uh, the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Right? Our naked. But brethren, John's point in telling you that we are naked and exposed, that then we will know him as we are known, is because brethren... He says that the paradigm for what God is going to do in us is that we will know God and all the glories of God and behold the glories of God, even as he has known us. That, that is staggering. There is, as John said, some degree of mystery about this. We don't fully know. There's much we don't know. John, John had already seen Jesus you know, in his transfiguration prior to his sufferings. John had seen the, the glory of Jesus come through on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that was, that was not Jesus' resurrection body. Right? That, 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 was, that was a pre-glory. It was a true glory, but it wasn't the fullness. And John had also seen the resurrected Jesus, right? He saw Jesus' resurrected body. He was in the room when he walked in, and he said to Thomas, "Thomas, you know, touch, See my side? See I' here. See it is not a ghost, but it is I." When Jesus ate with them, John was there. He had seen a resurrected body on earth. But John had not beheld, yet. nobody had the, res- the, the glory, unveiled glory of Jesus in his ascension before the, b- b- at the right hand of God. When he did finally get a little bit of a glimpse of that, you can look in Revelation chapter 1, just take a quick look there. Look at, look at when John, John finally gets a glimpse of that, Revelation 1. He does finally see Jesus, in a sense, in a revelation in his glory. And look, look look the way he's described in Revelation 1. John says in 1.12, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. So here he is, he's in in the holy place, as it were, in a vision, seeing the candlesticks before the throne. And and he says, I saw the seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of those, so think high priest here, in the midst of those seven candlesticks, which are the churches, there was one light to the Son of Man, clothed with garment down to his foot, girt about the breasts uh, with with a golden girdle. His head, his hair, was white, as wool, as white as snow. Eyes were as a flame of fire feet like unto the finest of brass, as if burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. You could also look back at Daniel 7 and see exactly the same thing. Brethren, it has not yet been revealed what we're going to be, but I'm going to tell you the things that God is going to do, the way he is going to make our resurrected bodies glorious are beyond anything you and I can imagine. But he also says here, but we do know this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. Just in closing, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. John, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight here a little more. We'll look at this a little more on Easter Sunday, but I'm just going to give us a little glimpse here. John, Paul gives us a glimpse here into a little bit of what we do know. But what do we know? About the resurrection glory that awaits us, he he says already. He's told us in 1 Corinthians fifteen that uh, Jesus is in fact the first fruits of the resurrection. So that Jesus resurrected body in glory, glorified, is in fact the template for you and I. We will be see him as he is. But look in First Corinthians fifteen, and we'll start. We'll just start at verse. 35. Some will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? A fool. That which you sow is not made alive unless it dies, right? Jesus told us that back in John 12. Unless a seed dies, it must first die in order that it might be raised into uh, fruit. But look what Paul says, and that which you sow, so the body that you sow, like seed, you sow not the body that will be, but just like grain. chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as it had pleased him, and to every seed its own body. So, so you follow the analogy. John is saying, Paul is saying, look, our bodies, it's like seed, right? The Lord, when you, it's like he, your body is given to corruption for a time. It's buried. But the living God from whom all power flows in his power when it's raised in resurrection glory, he says it's going to be something radically different. Right? You plant a little seed. We've all done this. You have gardens, right? You plant a little seed. We've got a little, uh, in our house, we've got little seeds we planted and we're already getting some loaves of, uh, of lettuce starting to spring up. The point is the analogy you get a little seed and, and and when the seed dies, as it were, something that comes out is altogether it, it, it's, uh, it has the same essence, the same DNA as it were, but it's something beyond what you would have imagined. just all you have is the seed, right? something glorious. think of Jesus' analogy of the mustard seed, though it's the smallest of seeds, yet it becomes a great and glorious tree that the nations the nations find their nest in brethren I, don't, I don't know exactly for you, for me, exactly what the fruit of our planting is going to be, but one thing I do know is that when the resurrection, the things that the Lord is going to raise out of the ground, brethren, they are going to be glorious beyond what you and I can even imagine. They're going to be beautiful. They're going to be, to use Paul's analogy here, he goes on he says, they're going to be, number one in verse 43 they're going to be incorruptible. They, they, they won't be able to be corrupted and die anymore. That appealed to anybody? Incorruptible. They're going to be raised, they're going to be sown in dishonor, but they're going to be raised glorious. Verse 43, and in power. So no more powerlessness, no more weakness and feebleness, spiritually or bodily, but they're going to be raised in, Power. Verse forty four. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Brethren, spiritual doesn't mean immaterial. The word spiritual pneumatikos means it's a body that is fitted for existence in the spiritual realm. Jesus' resurrection, tangible, touchable body, ascended bodily to the right hand of God. And Jesus' resurrection body was able to both be seen, but then it was able to be unseen. Right? Was he still in body? sure was. So it's going to be something radically different, but material, but spiritual. Completely controlled by governed by and suited for the spiritual realm. That's glorious. Brethren, that is the things that the Lord has prepared for you. So I close with just this. I started this sermon by appealing to you on the basis of what John calls of what John calls what I called that great affection with a capital G and A. John has appealed to you and he says, behold the love, the unworldly, what manner of love the Father has given to us. That God who is love, who has set his affection on you who know him for good, for eternal and temporal good. The only righteous response to that, brethren, is to embrace the cross, embrace That world, let go of our tenacious grip on this world and its allures and its dainties. Let go of Vanity Fair and lay hold of the celestial city, is what he's saying. Because of the glory and the thing, what is set before you, which is unimaginable. Andrew Peterson is probably one of my favorites. Anybody else here like Andrew Peterson? I some Andrew Peterson. I'm just going to read this, and with this, I'm done. He, he, This is the application. One of my favorite Andrew Peterson songs is a song called Seized by the Power of a Great Affection. With this, I'm done. I cannot explain the ways of love. Life cannot explain the grace of God's kindness. There's no reason that can satisfy enough the healing of this, my blindness. The feeling, he says, when I was young, he says, there was this, Some song going on behind the silence. It was just too strong to deny it. I have been seized by the power of a great affection. And so now, the theme of my song is that I will forgive as I'm forgiven. And even when the shadows are long, I will sing about the sun that's risen. That his kingdom has no end. His kingdom has no end. Brethren... I'm I'm appealing to all of you today. I think what John would tell you, what I'm going to tell you is this. Brethren, do not, do not, do not be easily pleased. In light of the glories that await you, you know, in light of the beauty and the things that God has prepared for those who love him, The weight of glory, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. These passing tribulations are nothing. Embrace them in Jesus' name. And brethren, lay hold. So if you're here today, if you're here today, and you'd say to me, Steve, Steve, I I love the world. Steve, actually, I, I find myself really just stuck in loving the things of this world. I exhort you, don't sit in your seat anymore. Make this the day that you lay hold of eternal life. Lay hold of the things to come. Let's pray. Father. Father, I thank you that you have set your great affection on those who love you. Father, I ask for each of us here in this room, for Isla, as well as for all the rest of us who have been baptized into your name. Father, may it be that we would remember today what you have said to us and what you've said about us, and that we would love your kingdom, we would embrace trials, tribulation, we would embrace the hurts, not because they feel good, but because they transform us. Father, may we be able to see the glory that is set before us and count it all joy, Father, may we be able to be those that bless when cursed, that pray for others when we are persecuted because we are people who are from above, because we are otherworldly. Father, if there's any here today, Father, that are walking in darkness, if there's any here today, Father, that of us today that are too content with the things of this world, if there's any of us today, Father, that are jaded and hurting because of the crosses that you brought, I pray that today we would embrace Jesus with a fullness of joy and glory, and Father, that we would count it all joy to walk with him, because we know that you are going to do great and glorious things, and you have prepared a glorious inheritance and future for us. So Father, make it so, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren,